Good afternoon, everybody. Let's check if we're live. And we are. Wonderful. Let's bring our dead mouse down. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Happy pandemic. Ah. I always have trouble with these solo podcasts because I usually like to interact with somebody and have a conversation, have a guest on and talk about something that hopefully you find interesting, but or myself or the guest will find interesting. And whatever audience members like it, they like it. Well, today um, I'm doing something a little bit different, something I've never done before, which is respond to Twitter directly. Um, up on the screen, I have my tweet from earlier today to Michael Malice. So Michael Malice is an author. I'm going to put in a plug for him right here. He's an author, a uh, very smart guy. A guy who I am actually a fan of. I enjoy Nightshade on Compound Media, as well as some of his podcasts on <laughs> You're Welcome. Uh, you'll get the joke if you see it. Um, he is the author of The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. I think a lot of his argumentation and point of view comes from that fringe, where I myself am what you would call a typical, stereotypical conservative. Uh, and I mean that in probably all of, all of the descriptions you can provide uh, for somebody who is, um, uh, you know, a novice to the political arena. What I mean by conservatism, conservative and conservatism is something out of this book, right? Conservatism. Cambrius lays out the history of how conservatism came about. Lays out the history of how conservatism came about in the second half of the 20th century. It is what I think the foundation and the bedrock of what the movement conservatism is. That, based on what some of Michael has said, I don't think is how he views what conservatism is, at least in the context and construct of the arguments he sometimes makes. Now, a lot of the things I, I think Michael is uh, uh, incredibly articulate about are uh, his views on the left, um, the work he's done on North Korea. I'd call him an expert on North Korea. If you scroll down on his Amazon page, I'll scroll down this. His book before The New Right is Dear Reader, an unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il. Um, anyway, pretty funny there. Uh, he is a very smart guy, Michael Malice is. Um, and he's definitely not of the left, but that doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily agree with him on everything. So I think if I were... I'm, I'm going to try to steel man his point of view. Michael from what I've heard, is um, a narco-capitalist, I think, 
if I'm wrong, please correct me if, if you can sum it up in one sentence or, or a phrase. Um, what that in my mind means is that his philosophical worldview is uh, philosophically parasitic. And I say that not as an insult. I don't say that as, as demeaning or anything like that. But I don't believe people who subscribe to that philosophy um, would be able to subscribe to that philosophy if it weren't for the inherent structures, uh, the um, institutions that conservatism, American modern intellectual conservatism provides for them. I'll get into that in a second. So what... What started this podcast, what brought it all about, was a tweet by uh, Austin Peterson, um, who was who ran for president in the, a few years ago, 2016, as a libertarian, and then ran for, I think, Senate in 2018 as a Republican. I guess now he's back to being a libertarian. Um, some of you may know th my thoughts on libertarianism. Uh, again, philosophically parasitic. Um, so anyway, he tweeted this, uh, in quotes, conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit, unquote, Michael Malice. Uh, no, it's not. No, it's not. Um, if, if you redefine conservatism in your own context, if you redefine it, uh, as anything that is not anarcho-capitalism, then sure, you can graft uh, anything that's not what I say is progressivism. Now, is Michael saying that directly? Eh, no, but he's kind of doing that and giving a little bit of an either-or situation that supports his argument, even though there's a lot more nuance and complexity to it. So I don't, I, I'm not a particular fan of conflating, like clarification, any sense to any of you. Good. I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, but if you'd like clarification, any sense to any of you, good. I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, but if you'd like clarification, I'd sense to any of you, good. I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, but if you'd like clarification, I'd, let me just say for the record, I would love to talk to Michael Malice, uh, one-on-one -on -one in a conversation about all this kind of stuff. I think it's very interesting. Other people may not. Um, if he's ever in Boston, he's welcome to come on this podcast, uh, he is inviting a friend of mine on his podcast, I think, when all this stuff is lifted. Um, perhaps I'll, you know, message him or send him a quick note. Uh, my friend was actually on the, the recent episode. Um, so I would love to talk to him more in depth about this because I think it deserves attention and a full airing. So conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. Well... Okay, let me try to dissect what that what I think he's saying here. It's basically everything that is baked into what modern progressivism is. Conservatives, conservatives have done a very poor job of stopping it and or putting together a counterargument that would say, no, this is a bad idea. Because after I told Michael on Twitter that no, it isn't, uh, he did respond, which is cool because he does that. Um, let me scroll through it. Sorry. Um, this is why I can't stand Twitter for, sometimes it leaves things out. Sometimes it includes things. So anyway, I replied to him, 
and he replied back. He said, okay, which of these progressive achievements are you willing to abolish and or going to rationalize as having been conservative all along? Okay. Well, those aren't my only choices. Those aren't my only choices. Uh, abolish or rationalize. Abolish, sure. Modify. Scale back dramatically. Uh, rationalize is that they were conservative all along. Well, no. Um, but maybe yes, that they are conservative in certain terms. Conservatism and probably be do a drinking game the amount of times you could say this in uh, one podcast. Conservatism is, a, a, in a nutshell, is adhering to the United States Constitution as it was laid out in with an originalist meaning, emphasis on the Tenth Amendment, um, the the articles that that lay out that the powers not laid out in the Constitution are delegated to the states or relegated to the states. Excuse me. So to say that you either abolish something or rationalize it is a false choice. Michael gives some examples here. Social Security, international military force, anti-discrimination laws, public schooling, antitrust laws, income tax, Medicare, Medicaid, and gay marriage. So those are pretty good issues to discuss regarding in, uh, what they may mean for conservatism compared to being a uh, progressive measure that was uh, implemented for the entire society. Um, but let's understand something first. Let's not conflate a political loss with what conservatism stands for. And that's important because conservatism in the modern context really only took hold in the Republican Party, uh, I'd say since 1980, when Ronald Reagan won. Prior to that, it was a fringe factional movement um, coming out of World War II uh, and the New Deal, especially the New Deal. And the response to federal government overreach. FDR going for an unprecedented third term. Prior to that, uh, the massive change and consolidation at the federal level uh, by Woodrow Wilson. So that led up to the second half of the 20th century, modern conservatism, and then finally taking a foothold in a political party, the Republican Party, in the 1980s. However, it still didn't overtake the entire party. It didn't become a conservative party. Now, you remember Ronald Reagan's vice president was George Herbert Walker Bush. He was not a conservative. He was an old school Republican, a Yankee Republican from Connecticut, uh, who did not hold a lot of what uh, the Barry Goldwaters or um, William F. Buckley's or any of the thought, uh, the Frank Myers, the, the, the intellectual thought leaders coming out of World War II, he did not hold any of those, a lot of those positions. So you had Reagan from 80 to 88, and then you had Bush from 88 to 92. So a lot of that political intertwining between conservatism started to immediately erode from that point on. Then you had Clinton. Then you had uh, George W. Bush. So at the top of the ticket, at the head of the Republican Party, there's only essentially the eight years of Reagan where 
strong fusionism conservatism took hold. So to say that the political losses of not repealing the New Deal, uh, you know, use, use of international military force, um, a lot of the progressive gains that Michael listed is somehow the fault of conservatism for not stopping. Well, you know, they didn't really have the power to stop it. Uh, and I, I think it's an easy target for those who might not call themselves conservatism. So when you say that's a bit of a straw man to tackle. So when you say something like conservatism is just uh, driving the speed limit, it's progressivism, or, oh, sorry, I took that quote down or moved on from it. But whatever it was is that, well, yeah, you're helping it along. You're just helping it along at a normal pace. Well, no, they're not. No, they're not. Those who call themselves conservatives, conservatives would wholly and summarily disagree with that. And there's, let's get into the concrete examples. So, um, unlike I think what I've heard Michael speak on, on quite a few things, uh, being conservative doesn't mean no laws. I've heard Michael talk about like private police forces and why do you need the government to do this? Why do you need the government to do that? That is a step back. Conservatism is a step back from where his point of view is. So I think he's grafting a lot of his viewpoint onto conservatism and making it, again, a bit of a false choice. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it means, it doesn't mean no laws, but it means laws within a construct. And that construct is the United States Constitution. So if we want to get into the first one, Social Security. So abolish and or rationalize it being conservative. It's neither. It, well, <laughs> abolish for me. But again, a political loss by Republicans doesn't necessarily mean, uh, or a political inability to roll back Social Security um, does not mean that conservatism supports uh, the unfettered growth or, uh, or, or entrenchment of Social Security. And I think you've saw that a lot during the 80s and 90s when there was try to be reform, move it, and privatize it and, and things like that. They failed. They failed. Um, but if you fail, are you helping it along? No, it means you didn't get the votes and you lost elections. Um, we'll get into 2016 to 2018 in a second. So uh, for Social Security, let me tell you what I would do. When I ran for United States Congress, because I don't just talk about this stuff, I try to do things. I try to get involved and... Um, make an argument and make a case for why my the the worldview I subscribe to is better than progressivism and liberalism. Um, when I tried to run for United States Congress, I had an idea to um, to allow people who save for their retirement to collect their retirement tax free. In return, on a on an annual basis, year to year, they would not receive their Social Security benefits. Now. Say that law went into place, right? Say that law went into place. Am I driving the speed limit on Social Security? I'm certainly not going over the speed limit, but if I'm reforming it, pulling back on it, allow people, people to keep more of their money that they earned, am I slowing it down? Yeah, I am. Am I starting to go in reverse? Yeah, I am. So it's not 
as <laughs> I saw him going today. It's not as binary a choice as abolish it immediately or you're enabling it, rationalizing it. No. So that's one, Social Security. International military force. Now, international military force is an interesting one because coming out of the Iraq war, uh, there is a lot of conflicting feelings about what the role of the U.S. military is in the world. But you got to go back a few decades. Coming out of World War II, 50 million people were killed uh, across the globe. In, I, and that was the most amount of people ever killed in a conflict ever. Massive, massive, massive amounts of death and destruction. The people that lived through that are grandparents, my grandparents. Um, and those who were involved at the highest levels of government and those who would go on to run organizations like the CIA coming out of the OSS uh, wanted to not have that happen again. Immediately after World War II, you had a communist threat, a communist expansion. You had the Soviet Union, which Michael knows. I don't need to explain that to Michael. Michael knows that well about, but fully well. Um, but you have to understand that for the audience, that's, that's baked into the calculus of what's brought us today, that machine that kept going that Dwight Eisenhower warned people about. So 50 million dead. You had the spread of communism right then. You had the Korean War right after World War II because people were so deathly afraid of what communism entailed and the totalitarian aspects of it and the, the brutal regimes that were resulting from, um, from communism that if you're coming out, if you're six years, seven years, eight years out of World War II, you've seen hundreds of your, of your fellow citizens die in one of the bloodiest battles in human history you try to do things that prevent the next world war because now there's atomic weapons and, and it could be a horrible, horrible situation. So that's what has informed the United States military force over the past decades since World War II. So abolish it or rationalize it? Well, the, the rationalization part, sure, yeah. Let's rationalize it because it deserves to be rationalized compared to the in the context of what we're talking about, and certainly in conservatism, because conservatism for decades wanted to fight the communists. Yes, yes, they should fight the communists. They should, they did, and they should have, and they advocated for policies that, that did that. Now, some of them went awry. Korea stopped the communist expansion from north into south, or, or, or at least held the south. Vietnam was not successful, uh, but... You know, the, we, our, our Cuban intervention was not successful, but that goes to show you the power and the strength of what we were up against. This one, I, I, the lackadaisical approach, and I'm not accusing Michael of this, but the lackadaisical approach of people who are doing the whole, uh, you know, red pill, blue pill, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm so awake uh, and, and the rest of everybody's just sheeple. Uh, you're nonsense, but th that bothers me because the world that we experience today is built on the structures of the men and women who maintain the institutions that stopped communism, that supported the military, 
that, for better or worse, were involved in foreign conflicts and foreign intervention. Um, there was a lot wrong with it, but there was also a lot right with it. Because we haven't had a global conflict since then. And that is owed quite a bit to the international military force that existed in the decades since World War II. I don't think that can be emphasized enough because people are really starting to take it for granted and think that it can't happen again. The stability and prosperity and peace that we've experienced since 1945, and there has been a lot of conflicts here and there, but nothing on the scale of World War II, uh, is owed a lot to both Republicans and Democrats who adhered to the foreign policy and at least expansion of United States military force. Anti-discrimination laws is what's next. This one's tough. I don't know why he said this. I, I you know, I, I, I wonder what he means by anti-discrimination laws. I certainly wouldn't abolish anti-discrimination laws. Uh, human beings act in a horrible way sometimes. And if you're discriminating somebody against somebody, especially in hiring or admissions in a school because of a category that they fit into, uh, when you're a, a public institution, and public by meaning you're not a private club, um, you accept membership and money and, and interaction with the public, no, you can't discriminate against them. That, and that's perfectly aligned with what conservatism is. There's no rationalization here, there, so that's a false choice. Uh, public schooling. Well, if any state wants to decide, if any state, municipality, locality wants to uh, collect taxes... Um, build schools and educate the children within that municipality, state, or locality, then they can do so. And there's nothing non-conservative about that. That's perfectly conservative. Conservatives have always advocated for local control of their government, which is exactly what schools should be and how they should be run. It's the federalization of it that's, that's the problem. So again, you wouldn't abolish it. That's a false choice. And it's not a rationalization. The, you know, the, the term rationalization or rationalize as having been conservative all along is not a rationalization. It exists. Again, the construct is the United States Constitution, federalism. The states, localities, municipalities make the choice. So some of this stuff I get a little irked about, but I appreciate the discussion from, from Michael. Second, or, or keep going here, antitrust laws. Uh, antitrust laws... I forget what I said if, <laughs> if I'd abolish that or um, or, or uh, <laughs> rationalize because I responded to him one or the other to keep, I guess, the conversation going. Um, I think as long as there's small – there's protections for small companies and competition, uh, then yes, antitrust laws as they exist is saying a can't, company can't be as big as it is are ridiculous. But – you know, and we're even seeing that now with with the tech monopolies. Um, you know, as long as competition is allowed to thrive, uh, you know, there there doesn't need to be um, antitrust laws. Medicare, Medicaid, again, um, what keeps, I guess, a modern society together is some level of welfare and safety net. Now, 
the conservative movement, especially in the 50s and 60s, saw the state-level expansion expansion of welfare payments, Medicaid, um, Medicare through the 70s. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, Medicare through the 60s, uh, Medicaid expansion through the 70s and 80s. Um, and you had the, the concept of the welfare queens and unfettered welfare by each state and at the federal for federal programs as well. Now, um, this one is the, the bottom line is if people are in extreme poverty and they don't have the money to pay for medical care, uh, they won't get medical care. Um, I think you should definitely be able to do that on a state by state level. The state of New York, state of Massachusetts wants to engage in, um, in a healthcare program for people who are in poverty, they can do so. Is that conservative and would conservatives support it? Uh, no, it's probably not conservative. And would the conservatives support it? Uh, probably not, but it exists. Um, you know what? Maybe that's the one list of one, two, three, four. He lists conservatives. Uh, there's not much of a rationalization. Uh, if you want to say conservatives flip for conservatives, uh, there's not much of a rationalization. Uh, if you want to say conservatives flip flopped on it, sure, you can you win that one. Gay marriage. I'm not sure what what he what he actually meant by here. Abolish or rationalize as conservative all along. I mean, the government shouldn't be involved in marriage, but it's a contract and you have to adhere to contracts equally. And it is part of the constitution that you have equal protection under the laws. So if you want to make a law that says two men, two women can get married, then fine, as long as you do it under the construct of both the state constitution and provide to protect the rights under the federal constitution. This isn't very hard. Now, I don't know. Uh, 25 minutes on this. Oh, it's way too long. Anyway, I want to close that saying that, Michael, I love to discuss this with you because I th I'm probably have misinterpreted some of your argumentation. And if so, I apologize in advance. Um, I would like to get what you actually think about each of these things because you are right on a whole host of issues, but I think you're wrong on others. And I'd like to have that discussion. I think it would be worthwhile for an audience to hear. Um, I've, and just so if you know, I don't know if Michael responds to this or tweets it or whatever, I've always tried to have liberals and progressives on my podcast um, and have. So if you go back into the past episodes, especially on YouTube, I've had some hardcore progressives on. I've treated them respectfully and we've had good conversations. So I like the challenge of debating somebody who I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, I think it's valuable and interesting and entertaining, and uh, hopefully Michael feels the same way. So anyway, that's it. I'm a fan. I'm going to do my Anthony Kumi impression and have a bud. Have a good afternoon. Maybe I'll shoot some more. I've, I'm going to do some more podcasts since I got it all set up about coronavirus and China and all that good stuff. But for now, I will leave you to your afternoon. Have a great Saturday night. Stay safe uh, and be well. Take care.